Hey everyone, producer Genevieve here with a quick note about today's show. We had some audio difficulties on this one that I was not able to edit around, and so you may notice some skips and distortion in Tasha's track this week. Uh, I did the best I could. I hope you are able to enjoy all the insightful things she says anyway. Thanks. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being. We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Scott Tobias. And our special guest star, Noel Murray. Hey, everybody. On last week's show, we talked about the 1947 version of Nightmare Alley and how it came out of Tyrone Power's desire to take on a darker and more daring role. But the 1947 version softens the material somewhat, particularly in the ending, and director Guillermo del Toro has said that the primary reason that he made a 2021 version of Nightmare Alley wasn't to remake the earlier film version, but to get back to the actual text of the novel that inspired it. Del Toro is known for his fantasy movies. His last film, the Oscar-sweeping The Shape of Water, was about a woman in love with a fish man. He's directed ghost stories and dark fairy tales and comic book adaptations full of oddball and human creatures. But Nightmare Alley is a first for him. It's a film with no supernatural or fantasy elements at all. He says it has the same theme as the rest of his work, essentially that man is the greatest monster of them all. But does that fully explain why him and why this project? We'll discuss that after this break. ask you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth. Absolute truth. I can do that. Now, brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle? Doctor. Please lay down. Can you read minds? Yes, I can. Under the right circumstances. Keep your answers brief. What do I want? To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. You don't fool people, Stan. I've given you a fortune! It's time that you delivered. When does it end? I want to know. If you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. All right, how did the uh, 2021 version of Nightmare Alley treat everybody? Noel, you're our guest. (laughs) (laughs) You, you, You say how much you like it, and then I'll jump on you for it. Okay, I, I wanted you to go first so I could jump on you. Let me go first then. Yeah, I was disappointed uh, by this film. I I think, generally speaking, I am a fan of Del Toro's films when he's got pulpier material. I Crimson Peak is my favorite Del Toro film. It, it would it, Blade Two would also be maybe my second favorite. I I'm not as I I don't dislike a lot of his other work. I, there's plenty. You know, I like Pan's Labyrinth. I like The Shape of Water. I like the devil's backbone just fine, but there's a kind of 
they're luxuriant, but they're also a little bit on the turgid side for me. And that was a huge, huge problem for me with this adaptation of Nightmare Alley, which is quite beautiful to look at, but just a, a drag. Uh, it, it had none of the juice that the 47 version had. It didn't pop uh, it, and it didn't feel like a noir to me. It's, it's insanely long at 150 minutes. And I felt like a lot of the detail... Uh, that it went into you know these characters to, you know, a lot it was kind of more brought out was just fat in the film was so it was just narratively just kind of killed the momentum of the thing you know you, you, we spend way too much time just kind of luxuriating in these environments you know i think at a cost of the urgency and movement that this film should have so i, I was pretty disappointed by the film overall see you use you use phrase like way too much time luxuriating in the environments and i i those words don't make any sense to me <laughs> because, because for me, that's what this movie was all about. Uh-huh. Uh, this movie was, and we should, we should mention, by the way, that this movie was co-written by uh, Kim Morgan, film critic. And uh, we, we have worked with her in the past. And our yeah, previous, she, wrote, uh, she wrote a piece for The Dissolve. Yes, way back when. A uh, great film critic and also somebody who loves classic Hollywood film. And I think this movie is really kind of like the two of them really digging into what they love about the movie and the book what they love about this material. And I like the fact that it spends more time in these places. I like the fact that it's like, you know, the carnival sequences drag on for a while, that the mentalist sequences drag on for a while. I am not going to say that this version is superior to the original by any means, but I do think in its own way, it's richer um, because hmm. you get to spend more time kind of like digging into that detail that I mentioned back in, in, in part one of this podcast, the, 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 the carny talk. There's a lot more carny talk uh, in this film, most of it coming courtesy of uh, Willem Dafoe, who plays kind of the guy who introduces the whole concept of the geek and the whole concept of uh, the carny life and all that kind of stuff. And I could listen to him, like, like listen to Willem Dafoe talk about carny stuff for, you know, hours on end. And I guess kind of we did. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah we did. <laughs> you know? It certainly felt like um, it. In this film. But I, I really didn't find it too long. I, I found that it definitely is not as taught, but the original is not taught either. I mean, the original does, as we noted, you know, in part one, kind of sprawl a bit. And um, I, I think that that's kind of the nature of the beast when it comes to this material. And um, I really did sort of love it as of a piece with the Toro's other films and the idea that the characters in this film, that they're, they're creating a show. Your theatricality has always been a big part of what Del Toro does. Um, and so the idea that in this case, the spectacle that the characters are creating is not rooted in the supernatural um, like it is in a lot of his other films. Instead, it is, is people who are alluding to the fact that maybe, maybe, maybe they could tap into the supernatural, but they actually can't. And so anything that they do wrong, you can't chalk it up to, well, dark forces or evil or anything like that. It's just people doing things that are wrong. Um, and I found that extraordinarily profound. Um, it's, this is actually in my top 10 films of, uh, of 2021. This has been a good year. So, oh um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed, nay, loved the Nightmare Alley. <laughs> okay. Tasha, what, break the tie here. I can't break the tie because I think I'm kind of snugly in the middle between the two of you. I agree about the pacing. I, I think that the pacing of this film is, is turgid. I think that it's overlong. I, I think that it sprawls too much. And there are aspects of particularly the introduction of Stan that I think we should save for connections, but that I just don't think work in terms of building a, a propulsive narrative or a narrative where you know at 
almost any point what the stakes are. That said, I think Del Toro does a lot, like every every specific concrete difference that I can point to in terms of choices that uh, he makes about how specifically to draw the characters, about how to motivate the characters, about what the characters reveal. I would side with Del Toro on those changes. I, I think that the characterization here is is sharper and darker and and everything's a little meaner and turned up in ways that I pretty much approve of, in ways that I think make the themes clearer and the the characters kind of more involved and more interesting. So, it, I mean, it's a weird place to be in to say, like, every choice that Del Toro makes is better. The older film is is better anyway, is kind of a conundrum that I that I have trouble resolving. But I think overall, the the earlier film moves better and maybe gets where it needs to be going more efficiently and in a, in a tighter way. Mm-hmm. I think the new film looks much prettier. Uh, I, I think it's got that that just kind of like del Toro lushness that the first time through, I did keep waiting for the supernatural surprise just because it's a del Toro film. It's like, you know, where where are the ghosts or demons or ghost demons or or vampires or or something i kept waiting for the surprise again because i hadn't read the book or seen the earlier version of the movie i can't help but wonder if i had gone in having already seen the 47 version if i would have been much more geared towards what this film is and thus would have been able to kind of relax into the sprawl and not keep expecting things to get somewhere faster if I knew where the, the fireworks factory was, maybe I wouldn't have been impatient to get there. See, see, that's interesting to me because, Scott, you watched them in reverse order. You, you watched 47 first and then right, yeah. one, correct? Yes. And so I'm wondering, I'm, my question for you would be if you had not seen the 44, if, if let's say the 47 version never existed, mm-hmm. if this was just an adaptation of the novel, would you have the same feeling about it? I can't know that because <laughs> I, mean, I, I watched it the way I watched it, so I don't really know. But I, I should think that I would have had the same reaction. This is what your imagination is for, I Scott. just don't know that noir is the genre for Del Toro. <laughs> this doesn't feel like a noir. It doesn't have, it doesn't, it, it's just, it's so, it just feels like one of his other movies. You know, it feels like The Shape of Water, but not with fantasy stuff in it. And, and, and you know, and I just, and I think that you really, what, what I missed in this beyond, you know, any sense of pace is like, is is just the the urgency of of Stan's quest and 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 um you know and how propulsive it is and how much you're, you're carried through, you know again like this 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 crane uh, this car wreck that you're you're watching unfold of, of him just of his you know kind of runaway ambition you know finally sort of hitting the wall and I mean it hits the wall in an incredibly violent fashion in the del toro movie that all that stuff is pretty vividly staged but I don't think it's it, I don't think the explicitness of this version makes it all that much better and and honestly performance wise i i like almost every performance better in the 47 version than this version i, I think almost everyone is miscast in this film uh i, I just I, except in this in the minor roles but i think but from bradley cooper and then all, all three women uh i prefer all of the 47 versions of those over the del toro versions Hmm. especially molly I, I just i think rooney mar rooney mar is terrible as she has absolutely no spark at all in, in that uh, role no, see, I was going to say that uh, I couldn't disagree with you on on any of the noises coming out of your mouth, but Rooney Mara 
gosh, I don't know. Like Colleen Gray is Molly in the original film. We're inevitably leaking into to connections and maybe we should just uh, make the jump <laughs> way earlier than usual because yeah, for your, it's, that's right. We are already making comparisons. It's so difficult to, to do this, like to, to even mm-hmm. talk about this movie without wanting to make comparisons. But I just I feel like Colleen Gray in the 47 version has such a, a spark that's just like a youthful, fresh-faced, naive spark that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the kind of thing that you're supposed to get out of Maria in West Side Story, having just seen that movie, uh, for yep. instance. And Rooney Mara works for me just fine as a sideshow attraction, you know, as as somebody who is who doesn't have that warmth or that humanity, who is removed from from the way of, you know, human discourse and has created herself a an image to be gawped at. Like I think the character works fine as that. It's much harder to buy her as a kind of dizzy girl who would allow herself to be swept off her feet by this con man and and carried off to a life where she would pretend that she was in love uh, for the longest time. Like, I kind of like the image of her character. I just end up not liking the stuff that she does because it doesn't fit with that image. I think the key for me is the scene where um, uh, Stan creates the the show for her, where he makes the, uh, you know, he makes her little electricity show more dramatic uh, you know, introducing the the dwarf with the switch and the spinning things and the I think all of that you know him lavishing that level of attention not just on her but on her as a performer um, I think that's kind of the key for me and I think that I think that's what carries her forward into the next phase of the story where she is part of the show um, the idea that she is taking part in this the spectacle again I, I you know to me I, I it's not necessarily a deeply moving thing but it it, it it I think it works as a motivation I think it's 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 something that it makes sense to me that that she would make the leap for it's not because she loves him so much as so much as she loves the idea of what he can do for her as a performer that's an interesting point I, I maybe it's just a, a case in that with that character of two just completely different conceptions of who that person is because the the Molly in the 47 version is just, you know, is young, naive, spontaneous, you know, willing to kind of take a leap because she doesn't necessarily know any better. And in this one, as you say, Noel, you know, is a performer. We see her, we see her, see her act, it can respond to him in this way. And Rudy Mara is not anyone who can suggest someone who just kind of fell off the turnip truck. She's, there's a kind of a weight to her as a, Performer that's much much different, much different vibe for that character, and you know maybe it's successful. I, I maybe it's more successful than I get, give it credit for, uh, and maybe that's a, just a, a consequence of having seen the forty seven version and anticipating, you know, a take on on Molly that that I was not given uh, by the Del Toro version. <laughs> An awful lot of the criticism that I've seen as far as the casting goes centers on on Bradley Cooper. An awful lot of people just don't like uh-huh. him in this role, and I don't see why. I've enjoyed Bradley Cooper a lot in other films. Uh, I'm not wholesale dismissing him as an actor or as a, a presence. But I think in this particular film, when it comes to portraying somebody who is stunningly handsome and uses that to manipulate people, but is just inherently hollow as at the core, I think Bradley Cooper is a perfect you know, choice for, for that particular role. 
I think he does fine as projecting a an air of sincerity that never quite feels sincere, but is the kind of thing that people would be uncomfortable calling out as insincere. I think he does a great job of portraying just kind of like a, a larger than life bigness that would initially attract people and then gradually repel them over time. I, I could easily see this version of the character having just gone through a, a chain of of jobs and positions and friendships from people who felt flattered to be close to him at first and then very, very quickly saw that he was uh, an empty shell of a, a human being and were kind of repulsed by him. I, I, I think that that history is just into the way he plays this character. And I did not have any problem with his performance. Yeah, no, me neither. I mean, I think he has a presence which is important for the way that this particular version of Stan is done in this film versus the original film, in that, you know, when he first shows up at the carnival, he doesn't say a whole lot. Um, he kind of keeps to himself. We have seen, obviously, little glimpses of his past and, and what brought him to this moment, but nobody else knows it and he's not talking. But he's Bradley Cooper. And so, you know, you see him, that first sequence with him and, and Tony Coletta Zena in the bathtub you can kind of see right away, it's like, you know, she sees him as somebody special. And it's not because of anything he said or done. It's because he's Bradley Cooper. I mean, he looks like he looks like a big hunk of man. You know, he's a he's a beautiful person. Um, and he, <laughs> he, he he's like impressive. And so I think you need I, I think I read somewhere that at one point it was going to be Leonardo DiCaprio. And that would have worked, I think, in a similar way mm -hmm. to have somebody where just seeing him on the screen, you'd be like, oh, well, of course, you know, this person is special. Even if he hasn't actually said anything or done anything yet, that would make you think so. So for me, that works. And I think it works later on in the film, too, because Bradley Cooper, I think, can play that sort of sleaziness very well. He has frequently in his career. Now I'm trying to imagine Leonardo DiCaprio in that role, and I, I'm feeling a little repulsed. I mean... Oh, see, I think he'd, I think he'd be great. I think he'd be great. I, I he just—he's. I mean, he—he he definitely like projects charisma. He's—he's he's not unattractive, mm -hmm. but I just think of him as you know a small man compared to to Bradley Cooper and everything Noel just said about him. Just kind of uh, Cooper being a, a a big hunk of man, and particularly that bathtub scene, and just sort of that sense of you know Colette. It's unclear, but it kind of seems like a low-key sexual favor is part of the service they offer. But she, yeah. the way she goes about it kind of seems like, yeah, well, I, I do this all the time. And uh, this time I'm going to enjoy it. This looks like fun. She <laughs> runs her hands across his shoulders and you just get this sort of impression that she's thinking, mm, built like a farmhand. And I, I can't see that happening with Leonardo DiCaprio, you know? So you so you pay ten cents for a bath and you just you're basically bathing in the middle of the lake. You, you do get no privacy whatsoever in this place. Is that how is that how these ten cent bath that places certainly work? seem to be the case. That's what you're, that's what you're paying for. I think that's what you're paying to be to be bathed in in a in a open setting. Um, <laughs> yeah. And speaking of on. which, you know, we, we, speaking of you know the the main roles in this film, I mean, I'm not going to say that Tony Collette is better than Joan Blondell because she's not. But she's Tony Collette. I mean, she has her own thing she's doing in this film, and I think it works in a different way than Joan Blondell's uh, Xena works. And a lot of it is that you can be a little bit more. I mean, they could have been a lot more explicit, like like Tasha mentions. The bathtub mm -hmm. scene could have been very blunt about what what you get for your ten cents. I think it's a little bit kind of a throwback to kind of not be explicit about that. That said, you know, I think there is a general sense of worldliness to the way Tony Collette plays Xena that is a, that is more. A little bit more down to earth, I think, even than than Joan Blondell plays it, um, and that's just a that's just a function of when the movie, movies were made. 
she's also Tony Collette is also somebody who you could always believe would be the sort to read tarot cards like that yeah, seems, that's right. like it's not it's not like oh that's we- how weird tony collette is reading tarot cards no she seems it seems perfectly fine to get back to bradley cooper i think the way tasha described him you know makes me feel like yes of course perfect casting right uh, um because he can he he has that charisma he can be kind of oily uh but then he, then he also has this a lot of range as an actor and the strange thing about this movie is that i i thought like he and everyone absolutely nailed the last scene like the last scene of this film is fantastic you know and just it really made me regret that i just like i didn't like everything that followed it as much because i felt like it really brought the movie home in a way that was both powerful and deft which the film is not in other places but it was weird in the sense like i i i didn't get him I didn't feel his him his ambition, his kind of you know that that oily charisma that I was expecting from him. It didn't quite have the impact that I think the film needs it to have, you know. And I think there's something. It's almost the way it establishes the character from the start. Like he doesn't say oh, how long does it in the film does it go before he even says a word, <laughs> you know. And then of course it has the framing sequence as well. And it's just it's it just it feels like it kind of sets Bradley Cooper up to be. Uh, this much more dour character than perhaps he he, he might have been, you know, and, and it kind of undercuts him when he, when he could, you know, Bradley Cooper is certainly character. I mean, we just saw him in Licorice Pizza, or at least Tasha and I saw him in Licorice Pizza because Noel hasn't caught up with it yet, playing somebody who has that kind of like massive kind of shady <laughs> charisma. He plays that, I mean, he's, it's kind of a standout performance in that movie. And I just, I, I kind of miss that energy here. It's not really that present for me. Yeah, I understand what you're saying there. It's just like maybe this isn't the best performance he possibly could have uh, brought to this this material. But I don't understand why people are reacting to him like he's some kind of uh, Ansel Elgort here. People just seem to think that he's like ruined this movie. And I, I just don't understand it. I think that he gives a strong central performance. I think that this, the problem is just more of the structure. I believe it was Noel that was talking about how, like how long it takes for him to say something, how long it his presence is just around. Watching this movie without the mm-hmm. background of having read the book or, or seen the previous movie, I found myself a good halfway through the movie thinking, I don't know who our protagonist is. And sometimes there can be a, a really delicious tension in that. You know, if you have a sense that I don't know what this person is capable of, or I don't know where this person came from, or even I don't know what this person wants. All of those things can be played for a real high drama because you don't know what they're going to do. I would argue that one of the reasons Pig is such a mesmerizing movie is because you don't quite know what Nicolas Cage's character is about and so you don't know what he's capable of. And mm-hmm. because you've got the the Nicolas Cage factor, you're perpetually thinking this might break out into terrible violence at, at any moment. There's a tension there that comes with not knowing your protagonist fully. But here I just kept looking for something to hold on to. And what I kept being offered by Guillermo del Toro was these characters who were more interesting than him. Uh, I really like Tony Collette as as Xena. I think she's distinctive and colorful. I am never sorry to see David Strathairn on the screen. I think he's terrific as Pete. I think their relationship is is really interesting. I think, you know, whenever you have Willem Dafoe on the screen, it's fun. Ron Perlman is very distinctive. Like you're throwing out all of these 
like very interesting minor characters that are colorful and that are beloved actors to people who have followed their careers for a long time. And then in the middle of it is this cipher, this question mark, who, again, I don't think comes into focus until the scene where he's like chasing and, and gulling the uh, the sheriff away. And then at least you see what he's good at and you start to see what he wants. But it takes a really long time uh, for that to happen. And that entire time, you're kind of asking yourself, what's this movie about? I can physically see mm. that I'm in a carnival but like narratively, where am I? Where am I hanging on to? Like, what is this? What is the story I'm in? Like, I, I just kept having that question. It's like, I'm in a Guillermo del Toro movie because everything is lush and heavy and dark and weird. But I don't know what this narrative is. And again, maybe that's something that would improve on a second viewing. I think that's fair. I mean, I will say that I will interrogate myself the way I interrogated you guys. You know, what would I think of this film if I had not seen the original multiple times, you know, before I saw this version? And so me, I guess, knowing where the story is going, I find everything you're talking about, uh, Tasha, in terms of Stan in the remake, interesting because he is not David Strathairn. You know, he is not Tony Collette. He does not have that lived experience that those characters have. He's not have the character. He's not, he's not Xena. He's not Pete. He hasn't gone through everything they've gone through, but yet he wants to take what they have and use it to make money. He doesn't really understand why it didn't work out for them because he didn't experience that firsthand. He is not as interesting a person as they are. Um, and I think that shallowness is actually one of the main themes of the film, that he is somebody who knows the huckster's tricks but doesn't really know what he's using them for beyond just to make money. Um, and I find that absolutely fascinating because I think that really is kind of what the movie is about to some extent is the idea that um, people can fall for, like Scott said about the earlier film, you know, the idea that there are rubes, you know, in both the rich people and the people who come to the carnival. Um, anybody can be suckered by somebody with a, with a, with a snappy patter. And the question becomes then, does the person with the snappy patter know why they're delivering it? Um, are they somebody who has, you know, specific goals in mind um, or are they just just saying whatever they need to say to wield power, make money, all that kind of stuff, which, as we have seen in the real world uh, lately, is not not super great, you know, to have those kind of people walking among us. It's interesting. I mean, in the, in the sense that you could say that a lot of these uh, characters are defined by their you know, wisdom and experience. I mean, and that's something that the weight of that is certainly something that Del Toro appreciates and, and emphasizes given the amount of time that he spends at the carnival. I mean, this is, this takes quite some time to get away from that, that area in, in more in, carny talk, more carny talk. More <laughs> there's a lot of carny talk, but there's a lot of, but also, you know, it, you, you know, you get, you get more time with Zena, you get more time with Pete and with, and with, you know, all this stuff with Willem Dafoe, you know, again, that's another much more expansive thing. And it's like, you know, all of these people are so experienced and have, have seen it all and uh, are, are, you know, I mean, if you're in the, in the carnival, you definitely understand all of the, the all the tricks of the trade and all the, all the pitfalls and how to kind of survive, you know, long-term doing this kind of work. So that all of that made sense, you know, and I think, I think the idea of Stan taking this code and exploiting it, I think someone like Xena would understand the the unsustainability of the plan that he's trying to kind of carry out because she she's been there she's has that knowledge 
Well, we've been teasing around the Del Toro question here, and that's that's the last thing I want to hit before we do just go full point-to-point comparisons. He says that the way that this film relates to his other films is that uh, man, man is the ultimate monster. And I see that here, but, you know, in keeping with something that uh, creators tell me all the time, which is they're not the best uh, analyzers of their own work. I have always felt I wrote a great big comparison piece for io9 back when Crimson Peak came out about what I felt was the big linking theme of all of Del Toro's work. And it was basically people haunted by the ghosts of their past. And sometimes in his work, those ghosts are extremely literal in that they are dead people and they want to kill you did to them literally in their past. And, you know, sometimes it's the shadow of the war that's that's torn your country. Sometimes it's the the experience that left you mute. You know, sometimes it's your parentage having, uh, you know, made you into a, an undead daywalker. Like there's always something in the past and there's always a question of can you escape it? Do you want to escape it? Can anybody escape their pasts? Or is it just an inevitability that it comes for you? And I see that again here. I, you know, there's, it's almost more underlined in the 47 version, exactly how Stan Carlyle grew up and, and what was done to him and how he became what he became. But we have both the scam that he ultimately tries to run, which is, trying to bring back a ghost for somebody who cannot escape the the literal ghost of their past and him trying to escape his own ghost and just completely being unable to do it. His history haunts him. And I would say ultimately it destroys him in a very ironic circular way that again, just brings him back to the past that he left behind on screen like two and a half hours previous. So, I mean, that's for me, that's how this fits into Del Toro's work. But I, I'm very curious what you see as kind of how this, like what part of the puzzle all this is. Yeah, no, I think that's all um, on point. I will say, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a little less interested than you in who Stan is or his motivations. I think that little tease from the beginning of the film to the end about what happened there with his dad and in and, and the, and the house is interesting only, I guess, in as much as what Stan thinks happens, which seems to kind of change throughout the course of the film as to whether whether Stan is just kind of a monster himself who, you know, got rid of got, got rid of the burden of his father, um, or if his father was the monster and Stan, you know, I mean, it, it kind of, the, the way they reinterpret what happened in the past kind of changes throughout the course of the film. Uh, but by and large, it's not super interesting to me, nor was Tyrone Power's speech in the in the previous film about how he grew up. I think for me, uh, as a Del Toro film, I, I, you know, my favorite Del Toro film is still uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Um, and what I love about that film is uh, the way the her- the young heroine is unsure what authority figure she should be listening to, like like what voices she be she should be following. And I find that kind of resonant you know resonance carries over, I think, to this film a little bit um, with the idea of uh, you know, again, Stan learning the code and finding ways to use it to manipulate people. Um, and then him himself getting manipulated by Lilith. I think the idea that, you know, we, we, we too easily acquiesce to people that we think know what they're talking about is, is something that I think runs through a lot of his films and is, is, is kind of, I think, true and chilling. Um, and, uh, um, in this film, I think it really, for me, it connected from start to finish that idea. I really like that. Yeah, it's hard for me to say. I mean, I always think about when I think about Del Toro's more serious 
works, they usually have that context. The historical context is so important to them. There's always that kind of overlay to films like Devil's Backbone and, and Pan's Labyrinth and Shape of Water. Uh, I didn't feel that quite as much here in terms of just like of Del Toro trying to use this as either a metaphor for the era or a reflection of the era or a comment on the era. It just didn't, it, that it didn't, it, it was a period piece, but it wasn't as obsessed with that context being an important part of the story as it, you know, the other films, I think. Well, I guess it is interesting in both cases of this film that, you know, there's no attempt to to modernize it, to bring it into the the present. This is for Del Toro even more of a period piece than it was in the 47 version. And the difference, I think, between kind of portraying your own history and your your own time period versus like looking back on something that kind of looks quaint and dated by comparison here is kind of one of one of the marks between the two versions. But I think to get into that, to get into both that theme and just the details of how how it plays out, we should probably go ahead and uh, transition into connections. I don't think we're fully going to find common ground on uh, these films individually. So let's see how they look in comparison to each other. We'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between the 1947 and 2021 versions of Nightmare Alley. Doctor. Mr. Carla. What's that? Your half. That's split, 50-50. Not interested. I got what I wanted. But you should have seen him. My God. I think they'll be talking about that the rest of his life. I think every time they tell it, it'll just get better and better, bigger and bigger. Toast, then, to your success. Uh, he asked me to uh, see one of his friends. Who might that be? He didn't say, but I'm considering it. I'll tell you what, you got a safe? I do. You should keep this for me. I don't want Molly to know about it anyway. Why don't you keep it for a few days? If you change your mind, we'll split a 50-50. And if not, I'll keep it. You barely know me. Oh, I know you well. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about what they have in common. It's not actually all that common that we do two versions of the same story and two versions of the same story that are so close to each other. We have actually talked about doing the Joel Cohen, Macbeth and uh, Throne of Blood. And that's more the kind of thing that we do. You know, here are two stories that are Mm -hmm. closely exploring the same themes. But in this case, the similarities are very, very pervasive and and very striking. And I think it's going to be more interesting to kind of dig into the places where they they separate, where they diverge. And for me, that kicks off in maybe the most significant and important way at the very beginning, where the 47 version has Stan already integrated with the carnival. He already works there. He already has a role. The people already know him. And we can just jump directly into we're doing the the mentalism act, and here he is as part of it. The Del Toro version brings him in as a stranger who initially seems like a potentially like physically threatening figure, just like this looming thing in darkness. And he has to find his feet 
among strangers and he has to, to gradually integrate into the carnival over time. And I think we gain a lot from that, from seeing the carnival with an outsider's eye, seeing him trying to make his peace separately with all of these different people. But at the same time, it does contribute to that those pacing problems we were talking about. How, how do you guys feel about the the different ways that these films start? I agree with you, Tasha. I like the, again, and I want to reiterate, you know, all the way through this, that I do think the original version is a superior film. Uh, so, you know, because I like certain aspects of the new version doesn't mean that I think that it necessarily is better than the old version, but I do think that it is a good choice in and of itself for the kind of film that is being made. So that said, um, I think that the, the story that Del Toro is trying to tell and with, with Kim Morgan, um, in this new film, I do think beginning with him arriving at the carnival, I'm always fascinated in films uh, and any kind of story, books, TV, whatever it is, by money and what people have. And, and you know, I'm constantly worried about whether people have enough money to do the things they want to do. So him kind of stumbling into this carnival with nothing um, and then, you know, stumbling into the geek show. And you know that at some point they're going to come and ask him to pay <laughs> for having seen the geek show and him <laughs> leaving you know, before they can, I mean, and that kind of leading to him, him getting a job, you know, um, you know, I don't know that whole thing you talk about, you know, things that make you feel some sort of degree of sympathy or understanding that right there for me, the idea that, you know, he takes this job because he has nothing. And we are, we, we see very clearly in that scene that he has nothing. Um, and that also he sees this as a place where he can kind of hide out and be among other people who are kind of misfits. I think all of that is very evocative to me. So, um, so yeah, I, 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 I do like, you know, again, not saying it's better, but I do like having that be the way that we get into this particular version of the story. Yeah. yeah I mean, the Del Toro version has that, you know, the, the beginning and the end kind of relate to each other in a meaningful way. You know, I think there's, as you said, there's a, there's a need for him to hide out, to find a home really, because no one's going to give him one. And, uh, and he's sort of grateful for it. And you can, and you can see him getting a job or, or, or in both in both the beginning of the film and the end, end of the film or at least negotiating for one uh, and also of course the big payoff involving geekdom you know the, the whole geek thing is minimized to the extreme in the 1947 version I, you hear about someone who is going to be eating <laughs> you know the chicken or bite, biting a neck uh, biting a chicken's head off um, that that is something you see explicitly in the del toro version but the fact that, that that Stan goes on this journey where he you know starts at, as a cardi and then comes back as someone who's going to be kind of a replacement geek, that's an arc, you know, and it's an arc. I think that that the Del Toro film takes more time establishing, like everything else. <laughs> but I mean, like it, 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 you know, I think I think just broadly speaking, Del Toro is is making the decision of of sacrificing pace to evoke this world as richly as possible. I mean, that's, that's the choice he's making and whether you think that's a good choice or not is, you know, I guess, well, that's, that's what, that's what we do. We just, <laughs> we're critics and we talk about whether we think those choices are smart, but you could, but that, but that was Del Toro's choice is to, to, to give you that, give you more time. And it gives you so much time, you know, before really, you know, the plottiness of it, you know, or the, the urgency of it really kind of kicks into gear. You're really just hanging out for a while. You know, and you get to get getting to know characters. One of the strange things for me about the fact that he does so much time is that it actually ended up making the 2021 version for me feel a little more lumpy and imbalanced because 
we don't treat Zena and and Molly and even Bruno, the the strong man, who I'm not sure the 47 version ever really spells out why he feels the protectiveness towards Molly that he does, which uh, Del Toro's yeah, does. Yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah. It feels just like a little glossed over, I guess. But because we spend more time in the 2021 version with Pete and with with Clem Hotley, the uh, Willem Dafoe character, and, and all of these people and their relationships and their acts, we see them as more than adjuncts to Stan's story. It makes me feel even more bereft when we leave them behind. It, it makes the story feel stranger that it's just no longer interested in them. And Del Toro's version reminded me very much of of Daniel Knopf's HBO show Carnival, uh, which was a, a series that I loved, but that was constantly kind of switching its focus between this really distinctive ensemble of a, uh, I want to say, 1920s Dust Bowl traveling carnival and this good versus evil kind of like cosmic Twin Peaksy story that at times was more interesting at, at times was distinctly less interesting than the ensemble stuff it felt the same here we introduce all of these people who are very distinctive and interesting and have a lot more presence and a lot more detail than they did in the 47 version and then we just abandon them and apart from a, a cameo where they show up to like goose the the story along the film just isn't interested in, in them anymore and Scott, you kind of made the point in part one, well, that's because this is Stan's story and, and their side characters, and that's fine. But in the first act of the movie, they aren't treated that way. They aren't treated like side characters. And then they get dumped to be side characters. And it just it felt really weird to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I, I guess I, I have I did accept Stan in, in both films as being the guy that we're following. And so uh, and so I'm, I was kind of fine with the. You know, reduced roles. I mean, you know, again, these are choices that you have to make I mean, in terms of how much time you really want to spend on these characters and on this world. I mean, do do, do we feel like, for example, the uh, the extended time we get to spend with Pete, uh, played by David Strathairn in this new version, is that any better for us than the time that we spend with Pete in the forty seven version, which is not as much time, but but I think quite potent in its way. It, it, you know, and I think what what time you do get with him is pretty resonant, and the way he dies and everything—that's a very shocking. I think the shock of that is more resonant, even though in the new version, Pete tells us we we know more about Pete. Pete, we learn more. Stan learns more from Pete, and obviously David Sothran is a, is a pretty major actor, and so there's you get a lot there. So I, I don't know. These are just these are interesting choices that we get to see see made. I mean, that's always the fun fun part of of seeing different adaptations of the same material is just is uh, deciding you know seeing directors make choices and and uh, and and seeing how what what the impact of those choices are in terms of you know the richness of a, of a story versus something like the pace, which is kind of the issue here uh, for me. Yeah, I mean, I do think I will say that regarding Pete, that um, the new film kind of throws away a little bit the the a really major story beat, which is which is uh, Stan, you know, poisoning Pete. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's 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 there, but I mean, it's something that really isn't really emphasized until later in the film when he talks about it, right? Like like the moment where he does it is not as 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 yep. as um doesn't stand out the way it does in the and first it's the film. most important thing it is the most i think it's the most important thing for for stan i think it's something that he is absolutely haunted by uh for the rest of the the, the film um it, it, you know and, and it's and it's such an important human quality for for him because we we can it's it's the one thing that keeps us from seeing him just as a creature of 
runaway ambition uh, because he does care that this happened and he, he does feel guilty and 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 uh you know responsible for it uh and that that makes him human and and uh, i think yeah to miss that a little bit is uh kind of a problem so my reading on the 21 version is that he poisoned him deliberately and that one of the reasons the film kind of swallows it a bit is because he's a bit in denial i feel like he maybe is trying to make the argument to himself that he just got the bottles switched. It's very clear, I think, in the 47 version that he had no idea that there was a bottle of wood alcohol in the the chest that he put his bottle of moonshine into and that they were unlabeled and in, in identical containers. It was a pure accident. And the reason that it haunts him is because he was the the cause of the accident and he benefited from the accident. But he knows you know, full well that he didn't do it on purpose. I really think in the 21 version, the implication is that he did it on purpose and kind of tried to convince himself that he wasn't, that he maybe he just accidentally picked up the wrong bottle. I think he starts gaslighting himself immediately and that that's the reason the film doesn't dig deeply into it. But I, I think it's still there as an undercurrent, just as much as Stan's guilt is an undercurrent in the 47 version. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I, I mean, it's a soft spot, I would agree, in in the film as to, you know, what actually happened there and what we're supposed to think about what Stan did. And I would say also a little bit, I mean, I love, I think David Strathairn is fantastic. I think he's a great Pete, but I also think that his version of Pete uh, is a little bit more together uh, than the guy in the 47 oh, version. Oh, for like, sure. You don't, yeah, you don't necessarily see him as somebody. Really, it's just the fact that he, at some point, at some point in the night, he's going to drink himself into oblivion. But in the 47 version, you kind of see him as being a hopeless drunk, whereas in the newer version, you see him as being a fascinating, articulate Davis Trefaren most of the time, except for when, you know, someone gives him a bottle of booze. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, you talk about choices, Scott. That's a choice, I think, that may uh, lead to something that's good, which is wonderful time spent hanging out with Davis Trefaren and something that is bad in that, that, you know, who that character is is not necessarily as strongly defined. Yeah, and I, I don't mind hanging out with Richard Jenkins. I don't mind hanging out with Mary Steenburgen, <laughs> who's terrific in this in a in a small role here. Let's get to them in a minute because that comes much later in the movie, and I don't want to dismiss with Pete quite yet because I want to okay. I want to get into the other thing that I think is a really big distinction between the how the two movies handle Pete specifically, and that's the the codes, the secret codes mm-hmm. that enable Stan's you know, money-making gesture down the road. In the 47 version, it's made very clear that Xena and Pete are hanging on to the codes. She refers to them as their nest egg. Like, eventually, they're going to sell them to somebody. They're just waiting for the the value that they're worth. And, like, part of Stan's frustration and hunger is just that sense that he knows he doesn't have the money for them. He doesn't have the kind of money that you you pay somebody to retire on to exchange to them for a property that could be turned into that kind of money eventually in his hands. But in the 21 version, I think it's much clearer that Peter's kind of, you know, almost got religion. He's he's come around on this being an immoral thing that they did. And I think he hangs onto the codes maybe out of a sense of nostalgia or a sense of pride in what he built. But I think there's much more of a sense of they're never going to pass these on because he thinks 
it's kind of a bad thing. He he thinks it's an inherently deceptive racket. And it's a moral question that prevents him from like handing them off to somebody else. And I think that that heightens Stan's hunger because there isn't just a sense of if I had money, I could do this. There's a sense of there's a dog in the manger. You aren't using those and you never intend to. And by hanging on to them selfishly for no reason, because, you know, of course, he can't understand the the moral code because he doesn't have that moral code. So there's just like a crotchety old man sitting on something that he wants and could use and could make a difference in his life for no reason. And I, I think that's one of the more distinctive kind of like moral lines drawn between the two films is the difference between how the codes are represented. If there's one kind of line that's going to stick around from this version as, you know, uh, as that will carry forth as like, the, you know, one of the themes of the film is don't do a spook show. <laughs> sure. Right. <laughs> and, 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 and that's, that's, you know, what, uh, what the new version of Pete really kind of brings to the, brings to the story is the idea that these, these things are dangerous if used improperly. And, you know, again, one of the great themes of this, of this new version is that uh, Stan is told over and over and over again, what happens? Like he tells them, this is what happens when you do a spook show. This is what a geek is. I mean, he's like basically laid out exactly. This is the path that people walk down. And then he just proceeds to walk right down that path as though somehow he's going to be able to do it differently. Yeah, there's very much a, I I think, sharp and distinctively drawn thing in the Del Toro version that's just you know, people make their own beds and then lie in them, that there's a, a sort of righteous, ironic fate to everything that that happens to him and that it's inevitable. And it it kind of feels like the ending where he breaks into hysterical laughter and says he was born to play this role, that he's seeing the pattern as well. And, you know, that's it. it it's real dark and I love it. Like, as, as Scott says, like the ending of the 21 film, I think, is just categorically better and and really really well executed so we've covered the the molly factor which you know covers the the whole difference between they're not forced to get married he you kind of uses marriage as a weapon to lure her away to but but, you know because he knows i think he knows in both versions uh, that he he needs a partner in crime that's capable of memorizing the code codes he needs a pretty girl because an act like this always needs a pretty girl and those aren't, you know, uh, apart from the the lack of a uh, shotgun or arm shot shot arm wedding, those aspects aren't humongously different. It seems like where we get the the next big divergence is in Lilith. The way Lilith is introduced in the twenty one version, her the whole business with with the gun and the things that he says to her give her a motivation that for me is lacking in the forty seven version. I really like Kate Blanchett's uh, version of this character. I like the way she's she's drawn and shaped. I like the motivation that she's given that she doesn't have in the 47 version. Uh, and I just outright think that she's a better version of Lilith, both in the writing and in the performance in the 21 version. I completely disagree with that. I, I don't. I, I Kate Blanchett's performance is, is one of the weaker elements of the film for me. I, I, I just, you know, she's playing, you know, a character who is in the context of this story of femme fatale and i think the, i think del toro struggles enough to make a noir make something credibly noir like you know it blanchett does not help that struggle there's something very familiar about that performance something not dangerous about that performance i mean maybe maybe there's something slightly more generically femme fatale ish about the lilith in 
Nightmare Alley, but there's juice there. I mean, this is the, this is a film that just lacks a pulse to me. A lot of times in film noir, it's it's the women who provide that pulse, that that level of of excitement. And I don't think I think there's a obviously an, a, a great deal of elegance, intelligence, sophistication that Kate Blanchett projects, but danger she does not project. <laughs> and I feel like that was what was missing from this part. Just that sense of like two people who have found each other at this very base moral level like they're both willing to go to a very dark and sinful place a place that nobody else is willing to go uh, to to collaborate on this and i think i don't think blanchett is able to project that kind of moral emptiness i guess i'm gonna agree with you both you're both right. How is that Why possible? Why are you on this podcast every week, Noel? <laughs> yeah, we, we, do need a, we do need a mediator sometimes, Noel, yeah. I got to say. <laughs> no, I think Tasha's absolutely right that the motivation provided to the character in the new version is much richer than it is in the uh, old version. But I also agree with you to some extent, Scott, that the problem with Kate Blanchett isn't that she's not dangerous. Um, it's that she's Kate Blanchett. She, she's basically, I love her, and she can certainly provide a specific note to this kind of film. The problem is that I think having seen a lot of Kate Blanchett films, I know the note she's going to play. Yeah. And she does not do anything surprising with it. She is Kate Blanchett. She comes in and plays the Kate Blanchett role in a Kate Blanchetty <laughs> way. Now, that said, I do think that that's kind of what Del Toro wanted for this character. I mean, like I was saying way, way back, uh, I think back in part one of our discussion, all these women that drift through Stan's life represent something. And I think in this version of the film, even more so in the 47 version, there's something kind of outsized to Lilith and what she represents in this version of the story. You know, she is both the kind of ultimate thing that Stan is trying to attain. You know, he's like, the, he's like the, this is the, this is the final hurdle in a, in a way. And also she is the thing she, that he is never going to be able to, to beat. Um, you know, she has him beat from, from, from moment one. Mm-hmm. That moment with the gun is pretty much the only, only moment where he has one over on her. After that, you know, she's she's dedicated herself to being able to get into his mind the way that uh, the way that he got into hers, and so um, it's not so much a uh, a realistic, nuanced character so much as it is, you know, uh, a cartoon. And Kate Blanchett can play that cartoon really almost as good as anybody can in in, in movies these days. Uh, but again, my only issue with it is that it is not in any way surprising. It is exactly what you expect to get from Kate Blanchett. Yeah, I really can't argue that, but uh, I like the Kate Blanchett thing that Kate Blanchett. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. A lot of people do. Kate Blanchett She's does. won many awards. <laughs> so yeah, I I mean, I guess I disagree about her not seeming dangerous, but I certainly I agree she's dangerous in uh you know Kate Blanchett mode one, and I just don't have a problem with that. I would not cross Kate Blanchett. I'm just saying. I mean, she'll she'll just give you that look that she gives you because she's Kate Blanchett. But I, I find that look uh, pretty terrifying. She would carelessly cut you and laugh while you're bleeding, <laughs> as the man said. Wait, I know that one. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just she certainly projects someone who is not going to be out outsmarted by this uh, dork. It's not going to happen. He's uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, so. You know that sense that it's true. It's it's good, but I think there's also kind of a just a spark there that's a little kind of absent and again it's just it's a film that just desperately needs that spark somewhere it's weird it's like i almost kind of wanted kim morgan herself to kind of take the reins of this movie because <laughs> i just <laughs> i know i know kim morgan's writing style it's it is very aggressive and sensualist kind of and, and intuitive there's something very distinct you know and rhythmic i mean it's, she doesn't 
write like anybody else and the way she writes is the, almost the opposite of the way this film is directed so i've got a uh, it's a curious collaboration in that respect it's not curious in the sense that we have two people who who uh know the movies incredibly well it can kind of unpack them uh you know in a lot of detail but uh but i, I have a feeling that that if kim morgan was ever behind the camera that you get a, you get a much different paced film than you get from guillermo del toro so uh, speaking of threat, speaking of of stakes, speaking of uh, danger, one of the big differences between the the two versions is Ezra Grindel, who we really did not touch on in in part one. Ezra Grindel in part one, the old man who has like disbelieves in the the mentalism powers that Stan is claiming and proves to be uh, the source of a great deal of money and potentially could be built for a great deal more money, but wants to see this dead woman from his past uh, in exchange. I mean, Taylor Holmes is just feels like a very generic old man to me in the 47 version. In the 2021 version, we've got Richard Jenkins, who A, is Richard Jenkins, and B, is just portrayed constantly as uh, like a, a terrifying murderous threat who is going to do something. And we don't know what, but he's surrounded by thugs and he exudes a, a sense of danger. And to me, the way the character is drawn and the kind of presence that he brings to his early scenes gives this film the stakes that it needs uh, in, in the third act in particular. There is a sense of you're walking a tightrope and you're voluntarily doing it because you see a huge payout in the future but you're not just risking people knowing that you're a fraud you're you're risking possibly having this guy who's angrily shadowing you tear you into tiny pieces there's just always that sense and mm -hmm. when the scam kind of comes to a head and Ezra starts talking about the women that he's done things to and you come to understand that he is probably a serial killer possibly a rapist possibly a torturer god only knows there's just a heavy series of implications i found that moment very chilling it's been kind of the under the surface the entire time you have to wonder what he's told lilith and under what circumstances but i just think that that adds like a level of depth that isn't there in the 41 version you know because he isn't a menace he isn't a threat and you don't really get the sense that he has deep dark secrets to go with uh sad about a woman that died 35 years ago yeah and the new version also he kind of comes across initially as as a mark you know i, I, I think that he's there's a sadness he's carrying that i think you know stan thinks he can do something with but it, you're right it is very quickly that you realize that you know he has no one to be trifled with and particularly in the sequence where you know uh, stan first shows up at his house and there were so many like layers of protection around him um, you know, kind of keeping an eye on Stan that you realize that, yeah, pulling off whatever kind of scam he has in mind is not going to be easy. Uh, the fact that he does it anyway is, 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 is peak Stan. Uh, Stan, Stan never learns a thing. Stan, you know, uh, always thinks he can outsmart whatever's going on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> peak Stan. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that is, uh, I mean, you do get some, again, more time, you get more performances. And, and I think there's, there is a lot to that character. I'm not really sure how much I loved the violence of the way that concludes with, with Ezra and then with his 
bodyguard. I mean, that makes sense, Scott. We all know you abhor uh, yeah, violence. Yeah. <laughs> this is a, a rare, a rare occasion where I'm qu- questioning tremendous ultra violence. Though I guess, I, though I guess the film sort of sets us up for it uh, from the beginning that this this is a possibility. But but it, but it is it, it is a fascinating thing that that Stan is able to kind of skip over you know a lot of red flags there and a lot of threats. You know, especially uh, the whole McElhaney character, the bodyguard does not believe his legitimacy at all and is very protective of his boss and his boss of course is is his own very powerful and dangerous man and so that does raise the stakes that it it does make it seem like this is a very (laughs) bad idea to try to scam this guy uh because the consequences are you know really obvious and really scary uh for sure so i i did like that aspect of it as well and of course and as i mentioned before you know what happens to the the kimball's that was a really shocking scene to yeah. that kind of murder suicide and to see it kind of to see it happen to see it done by an actress like Mary Steenburgen <laughs> with her kind of vocal register and her just general kind of presence made it all her, the, uh, made it all the more sunny shocking. smile right I mean it's Mary Steenburgen and it's just like and it's just like okay and she's kind of taken away this idea from what Stan has has communicated to them and it just it just puts this whole what, what's the word uh, what's the name of this thing he's not supposed supposed to do the uh spook show yeah it puts a little spook don't show the thing spook in, show. in the context of just like yeah this is this is definitely territory you should not be treading in because uh, the result is even when it seems like you've done something good for these people given some peace to people and all, while also making a buck you know you could, it could lead to unintended and quite tragic consequences I feel like Scott, like you're talking yourself into liking this movie more than. <laughs> I mean, like, I, like I, gave it, I did give it. I you know I wavered between two and a half and three out of five stars. So so I'm, I'm right in the middle on it. I'm not like I'm not condemning it. I just think I just wish it were better. I mean, I, I like most of Del Toro's films. I think this is a really good story, and and uh, I just you know just didn't quite I, it worked for me. And I think it, I think it had to do with broader issues of pace, and uh, you know I just it, it just felt a little bit lifeless in a, in a way that i think his films can when he gets too hung up in you know kind of the ornate detail of everything i think it just he loses a lot of stuff as a result and and uh i think this movie desperately needs some heat and it doesn't have it yeah i weirdly agree with scott on all of that i i feel like just ultimately there are so many mesmerizing bits in this this movie there are so many mesmerizing scenes and exchanges character details i just don't feel like the whole thing fits together in the way that you want a good noir film to to fit you know in that feeling of every last piece is properly put into place and it's all a uh, an oil a well-oiled machine that works really well i just never really get that feeling from del toro films i feel like he gets caught up in spectacle and he gets caught up in like themes at kind of at the expense of individual scenes fitting together with each other and and the whole story moving along at, at a pace that is not turgid mm-hmm. he just he seems to be very fond of turgidity i think <laughs> fond of turgidity that's a, not, not a great quality to have the story i will say i i i was kind of like asking a rhetorical-ish question of of some other film friends which was which was like how many great noir films are 150 minutes long <laughs> and, 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 and the answers were kind of like well you know chinatown la confidential they're, they're pretty long and it's like 
yeah, but there's just those you can justify because there's so much, they're so insanely dense and there's all this municipal, you know, complexity to it. It it makes sense that it's as long as it is. I don't think Nightmare Alley makes sense at the amount of time that it kind of expects us to. uh, Is it the, is it the first hangout noir? Is that what we got going on? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I don't mind it. I don't mind some of it. I mean, hang out. I should see. I should like this stuff. You're right. You're right, Noel. I, I, there are part of me that's kind of talking myself into liking it because I do. I always think like when a movie gets the world right, you know, it gets those details right. Like the rest of it just kind of follows, you know, it naturally. Like 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 that's the hard part. Just evoking a time and place effectively, you know, which is something that this this film does. But what are you going to do? So speaking of things that are uh, like turgid and a little protracted and and probably need to be tighter and need to know when to move on, uh, I think we've covered every possible detail of these two films (laughs) in uh, separately and in connection with each other. And uh, I think that this is probably a good place to wrap. Uh, The 1947 Nightmare Alley is currently streaming on the Criterion channel. The 2021 version is currently in theaters. We'll be right back with your next picture show. time for your next picture show where we recommend films or film related items that we think our listeners might enjoy no what'd you bring us what do you what do you have for us i think people who listen to this show should definitely be watching the mini series of war on netflix uh it is a series of cinematic essays um of varying styles in which uh critics and uh, uh and filmmakers talk about the films they love and talk about why you have for example uh, Drew McQueenie uh, doing a fantastic kind of conversation about the antihero and why we're drawn to them and why likable characters as a baseline is kind of uh, a trap that you don't need likable characters for a movie to be interesting. I think it's a, it's well supported that episode where he has lots of examples of what he's talking about. I think the combination of, you know, the critical analysis and the, the, the clips from the films really makes that work. I also like the episode where uh, Glenn Keane and some other people who worked on Disney and, and Pixar films talk about the way that characters are drawn and how there's kind of a an idea of a perfect balance to a character's face, but how that can work against the idea of having diverse and interesting characters. And, and they have, again, great examples of this, and they draw a character and try to create a character and discuss the things that go into it. Walter Chaw has a great uh, episode where he talks about 48 hours and ethnic representation on film. And, and I mean, again, these are just really, really smart, all the episodes for the series. Um, and they have the kind of conversations that film lovers should want to be engaging in. Um, and they're, again, well supported by, by sometimes there are just clips, sometimes there are interviews, sometimes there's actually original footage created specifically for these episodes. Um, the show is co-produced by David Fincher, uh, somebody who knows how to make a movie. So mm-hmm. um, I recommend... War. <laughs> I have to say, but the, the kind of the funniest part of War for me was like David Fincher touting that he was had a, had a big new like announcement uh, announcement, yeah. and everybody was like, "Hot damn, new season of Mine Hunters!" And it's like, "Oh no, I've got uh, a video essays." <laughs> uh, but, God bless David Fincher. But but uh, <laughs> yeah, I I should get to it. <laughs> That's all. That's yeah, all they're, all, they're, they're all they're all pretty short episodes too. They're yeah. about twenty minutes long. And I, and so it's I, not I, hard. Do, I, I do like like it in theory. I definitely uh, like it. You, you would you should you should enjoy it in actuality. I should. <laughs> I should. Uh, Tasha, how about you? 
One of the films I watched during uh, catch-up mode was uh, Quo Vadis Aida, which is a, a historical film about the uh, Serbian army taking over a, a small town and, and rounding up the people and kind of the the interaction between the Serb invaders and the local people and the UN presence, which is underfunded, undermanned, underarmed, and uh, unsupported. It plays out... You know, every year there are prestige movies that are these uh, human tragedies, human rights tragedies, civil rights tragedies, uh, individual rights tragedies. And they they pile up and they, they tend to sound exhausting in description. And I looked at the description of this one and I was like, why would I want to watch a massacre? Why would I want to watch somebody struggling to prevent a massacre? But it was the number one highest rated film on Metacritic for the year. Um, just collectively critics ranked this movie higher than literally any other movie this year. And how could you not be drawn by that? So I sat down to watch it with that kind of like braced expectation that I sometimes get with prestige films. That's just like, this is going to be dreary and uh, exhausting. and I'm going to come out of it sad. I was mesmerized like three moments into the movie. I was, I was just so caught up in this story. The lead character, who is a, a translator for the UN, who's kind of trying to ameliorate the tension between her people and these these foreign outsiders who keep making promises they can't keep. She's in an unenviable position, and she just gives a mesmerizing performance. She's kind of a middle-aged woman who just does not seem like the kind of person that we see very often as a, a central protagonist in American movies. And as this disaster unfolds, as she sees what's going to happen, as she sees it coming and throws herself into the middle of it, you get all of these little micro dramas, uh, the people around her that are trying to believe that things are going to come out all right, or that are flaring up in different kinds of anger or different kinds of panic in relationship to each other. And it all just plays out with this immediacy that feels like almost verite, but it's all very carefully uh planned and plotted. It reminded me a great deal of a maybe less grotesquery focused Son of Saul, which was another movie about a massacre that I just found mesmerizing and can't tear your your eyes away from the screen. So I, this movie's on Hulu. Um, it's if you if you have Hulu, it's instantly and easily accessible. Uh, and I honestly think that it's going to surprise people who maybe normally don't gravitate towards uh, you know, historical tragedy kind of films. But the characters in this are just so vividly drawn. The moments within it are so vividly drawn. The disintegration of order and the dis disintegration of civility is so vivid and just feels so relevant to today. Uh, I, I just all around found it a mesmerizing movie. Scott, I hear that you don't dislike this movie. I, I absolutely do not. I, I I watched it as well for the for the because it was the number one Metacritic film. I did a, a piece for uh, the reveal our newsletter about it was kind of a Metacritic catch up. It was like okay, let me just find the top rated films on Metacritic and you know and catch up with them all because I I I'd kind of slacked for much of the year. And, and I found when I looked up Metacritic, like just to make, see what what I'd missed, it was like, oh God, I missed almost everything in the top 10. So in Quote of, Quote of East was right at the top. So it was like, okay. Uh, and I felt like, and after seeing it, I was like, okay, yeah, that belongs there. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the lead performance, so powerful. But I think the, the key to the film is perspective, is just is to have this woman who 
has a job to do, you know, who is in the middle of all of this situation and who's trying to, to, to negotiate, you know, not only on the behalf of the, of the, of the UN, but also to negotiate the lives of her husband and her sons, uh, because she knows she sees what's coming. She just, she sees it and, 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 uh, and it's a very desperate fight because the ultimately, you know, the, the men and boys are going to get taken away and you know, what's going to happen to them. Uh, and, and the way that's handled too is all is again, not exploitative, quite chilling. So yeah, I, I love it. I think the ending of it, it is just a freaking gut punch. It's so good. Uh, you know, uh, again, I can't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into any details, but the denouement for this thing is, is, a, is just absolute killer. Uh, I highly recommend it to the people see it too if they're uh, looking to see the best films of last year because it's it's a it's a keeper. Yeah, I have rarely seen a more compelling and convincing film about the reasons that people fail each other, about the reasons that people give into to cowardice or self delusion uh, under under tremendous stress and pressure. There's a lot in this movie that happens that's both disastrous and just very understandable. And I think has a very, very keen understanding of human nature. So Quo Vadis Aida on Hulu, uh, highly recommended. Scott, what about you? So I wanted to recommend uh, a film that's uh, you can find on Netflix called uh, The Lost Daughter. This is the first film uh, directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, who also wrote the script. And it's one of those things I have to say, you know, instinctually, I can be suspicious of actors turned directors, particularly if they've acted for a really long time and then direct something. A lot of times those movies end up at Tribeca, <laughs> you know, they're like, they're like huge ensemble Starfield comedies that are not good. You watch a film like the lost daughter from the beginning and it's masterfully directed. It's a very, um, multi-layered uh, suspenseful. It's almost, you could call it's a, it's a drama, but it's got the feeling of, of, of just of dread and unease and, uh, you know, the tension of a, of a thriller. Uh, so Olivia Coleman, I think gives kind of the performance of the year as, um, you know, a woman in her, who's on this Greek Island, you know, for a getaway and, um, whatever piece she hopes to find is disrupted by, a family that is uh, quite loud and, and, and also quite dangerous. That so seems to have some kind of mob connection. But she ends up focusing on the, this woman, uh, Nina, played by Dakota Johnson, who's part of the family and who is a mother, but who uh, doesn't seem to be that engaged as a mother. And, the, and, and that kind of opens the film up into a story about maternal ambivalence because we learn some things about Olivia Coleman's character's past, uh, and she's played in flashbacks by Jesse Buckley. We learn some things about um, her own feelings about motherhood, or her own, and how they conflicted with her ambitions, and, and you know, as an academic and as some and as an independent person, uh, and how she just didn't take to it naturally, and the and the, and the shame that went along with that that she's had to carry with her, and that she can't escape from, even in this island, and and she behaves in a very peculiar way and she she makes a a decision that is inexplicable i should say that i won't reveal here but it's something that we puzzle over and there's so much about this movie that you just that's just it's like a mystery upon a mystery upon mystery and it's all layered beautifully it's got this in you know it's got this really lovely score i just think I, I'm just amazed by it. I think it's a, you know, it, it's a, it's an incredible piece of direction. It makes me wonder, like, has she tried before? Is other people have people stopped her from directing? Like, wh why haven't we seen her behind the camera more? Because it's got that kind of like, 
she should be should have been doing this a, a long time ago she's a it's a serious piece of work so uh the lost daughter it's on netflix and uh you you gotta see it it's great yeah i'd, I'd like to interject and say that uh, i have a review of the lost daughter currently on the av club uh, which uh, I like the movie quite a bit. Seeing it a second time uh, really kind of clarified for me that it really is just a really fantastic piece of work. I've heard some complaints about from people who weren't as wild by it who don't think that it's particularly visually interesting, but seeing it a second time, those people are wrong, wrong, no, wrong. those people are um, really wrong. God, man, it looks great. And it's got like a, it's got uh, a cool, like, the score is really cool, and it's got like a t- tone to it. Like, the atmosphere is like a big part of it. Yeah, yeah I mean, v- visually, it really does, does a lot with close-ups versus not close-ups and what you see and don't see and people kind of invading people's space just visually like they, their faces are in your face and in the way it's shot and yeah no i think it's a fantastic uh, piece of work and um uh, i will warn that my review does give away the thing you refuse to give away <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> so, what <laughs> my re- so, my, re- my review does as well so <laughs> yeah so i i'm also guilty i don't know why i'm being so shy on this one but i guess i can i guess i can be so the lost daughter, Maggie Gyllenhaal, incredible debut. Uh, it, it's in theaters now, but if I, I think by the time our listeners are hearing this, it will be on Netflix. It's on Netflix on December thirty first. So uh, definitely check it out. It's a must. And what are you going to do? It's right there. You just push play. Sit on your couch. Well, you know? if you're if you're an early bird listener to this podcast, uh, wait three days and then press play. But okay. uh, yeah, if you if you want to weigh in on the uh, how's the cinematography debate that's uh, apparently going on that uh, both both Noel and Scott are on the positive side of, uh, you can just press a button and see it for yourself, assuming that you have Netflix. These are all pretty easy movies to find on streaming, and we hope you enjoy all three of them. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show and for this year of The Next Picture Show. Uh, We're all scattering for the holidays almost immediately after we record this, but we'll be back soon with our next plans, including a Best of Film 2021. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Nightmare Alley's Old and New and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Uh, Noel, let's start with you. Well, like I mentioned, you can find my current review of The Lost Daughter on the AD Club and also my lists of the best films and best TV of the year uh, should be up there by the time that uh, this runs. I have a list of the best documentaries of the year on Polygon, which I recommend people seek out and read. Uh, and I'm also um, frequently in the New York Times. I just recently finished reviewing the most current season of Succession. And I have a couple pieces running about the new Yellowstone spinoff, 1883. Um, so you can look for those as well in the New York Times. And on Twitter, you can find me at, at Noel Mew. That's N-O-E-L-M as in Murray U. Scott, what about you? Yeah, so um, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, uh, you can find uh, my work and, and our absent co-host Keith Phipps's work at uh, our newsletter, The Reveal, uh, uh, thereveal.substack.com. We've got uh, a lot of things going on there, a lot of chat chat about uh, Macbeth, and um, and uh, we have uh, you know, New Cult Canon has been re- revived. Uh, I've got, got something up on uh, Speed Racer. Yeah, and we have some be- some best of the year stuff coming up on that. Uh, you can also find my work in the New York Times and uh, Vulture, where 
Noel and I were writing competing succession <laughs> recaps. Uh, so uh, we were going toe to toe on that. Uh, though, though, I'm, uh, though I'm going one a step further by recapping all of the first season. Also mm. for Vulture, that's on. That's kind of currently unfolding, and, and you know, and I've got a lot of retrospective pieces on Guardian and and other places. So I'm very busy. I'm not getting a lot of sleep. Um, what about you, Tasha? I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com, uh, where I curate works by people like Noel Murray, whose um, best documentaries of the year uh, is a spectacular piece, and I highly recommend that you come find it. Uh, we could use more film Twitter people over there, you know, more of more of the film world uh, coming in and checking out Noel's, Noel's work and uh, documentaries in general. Uh, I am on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Our absent co-host, Keith Phipps, as we previously mentioned, uh, you can find his work on The Reveal alongside Scott's. He is uh, also a freelancer who is all over the place, and uh, his book, Age of Cage, is coming out next year. You can find him on Twitter at kphipps3000, K-P-H-I-P-P-S 3000. Our absent co-host and producer, Genevieve Kosky, is the TV editor at Vulture.com. She is on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it and please consider rating and reviewing us, which will help others find your very favorite movie podcast of all time ever. Ours, our, our podcast. Just to clarify that your favorite movie podcast is is ours. <laughs> you know, if you have to tell them that, no, maybe they could maybe they could stand to to be told that. Thanks to Dan the Big Jigs for his assistance in producing your very favorite film podcast ever. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs>